Luke 1, in the first four verses, Luke tells us there that he wrote his account that Theophilus and those others who would read the account might know the certainty of those things in which he had been instructed. And one of those things, congregation, was Jesus on the cross. Luke wanted Theophilus and he wanted all who would read his account to know that Jesus was really crucified. But not just that. Not just that. He also wanted, wanted him to see the beauty and the glory in Jesus on the cross. He wanted him to see that his crucifixion, as awful as it was, is not a reason to turn away from Jesus, as so many people did and do today, in disappointment, disgust, and disbelief. It's a reason to humbly and wholeheartedly turn away from our sins to him and trust in him. And that's why, that's why Luke tells us about Jesus on the cross the way he does in Luke 23, verses 33 to 49. This will be our text and the focus of our meditation this morning. Luke 23, verses 33 to 49. He wants us to behold, and really the Holy Spirit through Luke, wants us to behold Jesus on the cross as one full of beauty and glory. He actually mentions, it's interesting, Maybe you noticed as we read this chapter, he mentions different people beholding, beholding or seeing Jesus on the cross and the things that happened then four times. Once in verse 35 and then three times in verses 47 to 49. Beholding Jesus on the cross he, is important, but, but what's more important is what does the Holy Spirit want us to behold as we look at him? So as we look at this passage under the theme, Beholding Jesus on the Cross, with God's help, we want to notice three things. First of all, His love, His love for sinners. And secondly, His power unto salvation. And thirdly, His triumph, His triumph in death. Well, first, let's behold His love, His love for sinners. Luke highlights this, especially in verses 33 to 38. I'm not going to read all those verses again, Right now, but just to summarize, we're, we're told there about Jesus being crucified at, at a place called Calvary. Translated, skull. In between two malefactors or evildoers. He was crucified as if he were a criminal like them. But then Luke draws our attention, he, he draws our attention away from the actual crucifixion, from the, the physical aspect of it. And he draws our attention to something Jesus prayed either while he was being nailed to the cross or shortly after. He prayed these amazing words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Luke continues to tell about his suffering. He describes the soldiers dividing his garments and casting lots. He, he talks about the rulers and the soldiers sneering at Jesus, mocking Jesus, calling on him to save himself if he is the Christ, if he is the chosen of God, if he is the king of the Jews. But Jesus doesn't save himself, does he? He doesn't save himself. No, he stays. He stays on the cross. Behold Jesus. Behold his love for sinners. What an amazing what an amazing love. He prays. He intercedes for sinners. 
for sinners who are in the very act of crucifying him. Think of the pain and the shame and the agony he's in. He's nailed to a cross like one of the worst criminals, even though Pilate had several times declared that he had found no fault in him. And yet he prays. He prays for the ones who had just hammered those nails into his hands and feet. And what does he pray? He prays and asks his father. He asks God to forgive them. What? Forgive them? He's asking his father to forgive the ones who are killing him? Yes, that's what he's praying. Father, forgive them. Forgive them their sin. Can you understand that? Children, if I asked you if you loved your brothers and sisters, I'm sure you would, you would say yes. But, but what happens when you're playing together and your brother or sister takes what you were playing with? You get upset, don't you? Maybe you try to grab it back. Maybe you even say or do something nasty in return. It's hard to show love to people who've wronged us. But here is Jesus on the cross, the holy and the righteous Son of God, put there unjustly by wicked hands, and yet he doesn't strike back. He doesn't say something nasty. He doesn't hurl abusive words or give angry looks to his murderers. But that's not all. He actually prays that his father would forgive them. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He doesn't ignore their sin. He doesn't throw it under the rug. He doesn't pretend that it wasn't serious. It was very serious. They were crucifying God's beloved son. It was very serious. And that's why when he prays for them, he adds, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They are killing God's son. Nothing can be worse than that. Think about it, parents. Think about it. Imagine if someone did that to one of your children. You wouldn't just pretend it's no big deal. You would pursue justice to the full extent of the law. But even as he's being killed, that son of God calls on his father to take their ignorance into account. The people didn't realize that he really was the son of God, the Lord of glory. They should have. Yes, they should have. Jesus had made it so obvious in his life and ministry, but they didn't see it. They were crucifying Jesus ignorantly, in blind unbelief, just like Paul said of himself when he described his his life before conversion, his persecution of Christians, I did it ignorantly, in unbelief. And Jesus calls on his Father to take that into account and so to forgive them. He prays that his Father would forgive them, though they were committing the worst sin possible. The sin of crucifying God's dear Son. Do you see the love of Jesus on the cross? Can you understand it? I can't. I can't. I can only describe it. I can only describe it as Paul describes the love of Christ in Ephesians 3. A love 
surpasses knowledge. Do you see it here in Jesus on the cross? And doesn't the love of Christ for sinners in his prayer radiate with beauty and glory? Why would you turn away? Why would you turn away in disappointment and disbelief from such a one as this? Are you not a sinner? Isn't this love the kind of love that you and I need? The love of a mediator. Here it is in Jesus on the cross. The love of one who intercedes with the Father for sinners, for even the worst and the chief of sinners. It's a love so amazing, so divine. It's a love you cannot measure. It's a love that you cannot fathom. It's a, it's a love that you cannot find the edges of. That's the love of Jesus on the cross for sinners. Do you see it? Do you see what it means? It means no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been rejecting Jesus, or no matter how horribly you have sinned, even if you have forsaken him for many years, maybe this is the first time back in church, I don't know. It means he won't turn you away when you turn to him. He won't reject you when you confess your sins and put your trust in him no matter how weak and how trembling your your faith may be. Behold his love for sinners. It's amazing love. And it's self-denying love. After Luke tells us about Jesus praying to his father to forgive those crucifying them, he goes on to tell us more about Jesus' suffering. The soldiers divide his clothing and cast lots for his tunic. The people stare at him, hanging there in shame. And just by the way, it's not coincidence. It's not coincidence that we just sang about that from Psalm 22. Let me recall for you one of the verses we sang. While on my wasted form they stare, the garments torn from me they share. My shame and sorrow heeding not, and for my robe they cast the lot. That was written, congregation, about 1,000 years before Jesus Christ was crucified. There's something more going on here than unfortunate circumstances. God's word is being fulfilled. God's love is being revealed. What a, self, what a self-denying love Jesus shows. The rulers sneer at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he be Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers mock him. They, they, they come and they offer him the sour wine that they would have for themselves and they hold it out to him as, if, as, as it were saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, as the sign above him said, save thyself, come down, take this drink. And even the one criminal beside him joins in the mockery The taunts fly at Jesus. Save thyself. Save thyself. Save thyself. But Jesus doesn't. He silently suffers. He doesn't save himself. And now the question is why? Why? 
because he can't? No. Because he won't. He could have. He could have saved himself. He could have come down from the cross, but he didn't because of his love for sinners. He didn't just pray on the cross that his father would forgive them. He stayed on the cross so that his father can forgive them. He prayed and he stayed because he knew, he knew his dying on the cross was the only way God can forgive sin. Oh, what self-denying love. Behold Jesus on the cross. Behold his love for sinners like you and like me. Where can you find a love like this? Where? If there's any place we should expect to find it, it should be here. It should be in the church. It should be among Christians. But it's so hard, isn't it? Yes, it's hard. Just ask Jesus. But then, don't just ask Jesus, but then behold him. Behold him on the cross. That's what we need to do when it's hard to love someone who's wronged us. Behold his love for sinners. Behold his love for you. But there's far more to see here than his love. We also, we also behold his power unto salvation. And this is our second point, beholding his power unto salvation. And our text brings this out especially in verses 39 to 43. Verse 39 describes how one of the malefactors, which were hanged with Jesus, railed on him. If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now, if you look at Matthew and Mark's account, you know that at first both criminals, both of them, were mocking Jesus. But at some point, the one became convicted of his sin. And so Luke tells us in verse 40 and 41 that he answered the other man and rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. He has done no evil. And then we read that he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And how does Jesus respond? Does he ignore him? Does he tell him it's too late? Does he tell him he's too busy suffering for others? Verse 43, Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Jesus saves this criminal, this evildoer. In congregation, there are so many things we can learn from these verses. But, but, but today, let's just, let's just focus on Jesus. And let's behold his power. His power unto salvation. And for one thing, what a glorious power. What a glorious power it is. Think again about what is happening. He, Jesus is there. He's hanging on the cross. He was in unimaginable pain. I love how Ryle puts it. The time when the thief was saved was the hour of our Lord's greatest weakness. 
He was hanging in agony on the cross. Yet even then, he heard and granted a sinner's petition and opened to him the gate of life. And then Ryle says this, Surely this was power. Amen? Do you see that congregation? Do you see Christ's glorious power unto salvation as you see him on the cross here in our text? Isn't that, I ask you, the kind of power we need? Well, then let's not turn away from Jesus, but let's go to him. Let's go to him with all of our inability, all of our sinfulness, all of our depravity, all of our weakness, and all of our fears. Let's go to him. He saved a sinner when he was in agony on the cross. Surely he can, keep, he can save you and keep you saved now that he's in glory on the right hand of God the Father. But you say, will he have me? I've done so much evil. I've lived so long rejecting him. And then don't you see him? Don't you see him on the cross? Don't you see his power unto salvation? It's not just a glorious power. It's a gracious power. Look at the man he saves. He was a dying man, a destitute man, hanging on a cross, rejected by the world. From the world's viewpoint, there was no hope, no hope for him of salvation. But from the viewpoint of Jesus, the crucified Savior, there was hope. He did not say to this man, forget it. You've wasted your life. You've wasted your opportunities. He didn't say to this man, the sins you've committed, I'm sorry, they're too wicked. He didn't say, practice your prayers a little more and then come back to me. He said, and he said with authority, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He saved this dying, destitute man. Oh, then you are not a hopeless case. I don't know what you've done. But you are not a hopeless case. No one is a hopeless case with Jesus. As long as you live on this earth, what an encouragement that is to come to him, to turn to him and away from our sins. He will not turn you away. That's what he himself said. The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Well, then come. Yes, come as this evildoer came. Come confessing your sins and sinfulness. Don't try to hide them. Don't try to excuse them. Don't try to find someone else worse than you are so that you can feel better about yourself. But come like this man beside Jesus. He didn't try to paper over his sin. He admitted, he admitted he was a sinner. He admitted it was right for him to die for his sins. He admitted that crucifixion he admitted that God's curse was what he deserved. But you see, he beheld Jesus on the cross. He saw him. He saw his love for sinners. He saw his sinlessness. And by the grace of God, he recognized him. This is the Christ. This is the King of the Jews. This is the Son of God. This is the Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so he prayed, Lord, remember me 
when thou comest into thy kingdom. And what happens? What happened, young people? The Lord didn't turn him away. He welcomed him. He saved him. And he reassured him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me, with me in paradise. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you come to Jesus in faith like this malefactor, this thief, this criminal, he will save you. He will welcome you. He will receive you. That's what God wants us to see in this text. Maybe you say, Pastor, I want to believe that. I try to come to Jesus. I really do. But I don't feel saved. It can be a real struggle. Can I give some advice? Some advice that I have to give myself at times too. Stop beholding your feelings. Stop beholding your feelings. Behold Jesus Christ. Behold him on the cross. Don't focus on your feelings. Just believe what God is saying through this text. He's saying he doesn't turn away anyone who comes to him. But don't use that. Don't use that truth that his power unto salvation is a gracious power. Don't use that to say, I can worry about it later then. Don't use it to say, I'll get saved later. God doesn't tell us about the salvation of this dying man to make us think that we can wait to repent and believe until we're on our deathbed. Don't forget only one of the malefactors was saved. Only one. If I may quote Ryle again, one thief was saved that no sinner might despair, but only one that no sinner might presume. Behold Jesus on the cross. Behold his power unto salvation. Oh, what glory and what beauty. Don't you agree? Do you see it with me? There is in the Savior. Oh, let it encourage you then. Let it encourage us all and urge us all to come to Jesus and to keep coming to him. What a Savior he is. But how can I be sure? Well, maybe, maybe you can guess what I'm going to say in answer to that. You can be sure by beholding Jesus on the cross, beholding not just his love for sinners and not just his power unto salvation, but behold also his triumph in, his triumph through death. And we see this especially in verses 44 to 46. This is our third point. Let's read those verses together a moment, verses 44 to 46. We read this, and it was a bit about the sixth hour. That's, that's noon, 12 p.m. And Mark tells us that Jesus was crucified, by the way, at the third hour, at nine o'clock in the morning. So Jesus had been hanging on the cross for three hours, but now something happens. It was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. So three hours of darkness. And the sun was darkened, 
And the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, dies. But don't miss what the text is saying. He dies in triumph. He dies having borne the judgment of his Father on sinners. Behold him there hanging, hanging in that strange darkness. But it became dark in the middle of the day over all the earth for three hours from twelve to three. Not because it was cloudy, but because the sun itself was darkened. There, there's something mysterious about this. But, but what is it a picture of, congregation? It's a picture of God's judgment. Maybe, children, you remember when God delivered his people, Israel, out of Egypt. And you remember the plagues, right, that he brought on Egypt because Pharaoh refused to, to let his people go. And he sent plagues. And do you remember how many plagues? Yeah, I heard somebody say it. Ten plagues, right? And one of those plagues, the ninth plague was, was darkness. Thick, awful darkness. So thick that the Egyptians couldn't see each other or go anywhere for three whole days. Later on in the Bible, when the prophets speak about the coming day of the Lord, the day of judgment, they sometimes mention darkness. I want to just read one example to you from Isaiah 13. Verses 9 to 11. Listen to these words. Isaiah 13, 9 to 11. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish, the Lord is speaking here, I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity and I will cause the arrogance of the proud to cease and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. What solemn words. What frightening words. The darkness was a sign, a picture of God's judgment, his righteous judgment. This is not vindictive wrath. This is holy wrath. It's not, it's not personal Revenge, it's holy, just, righteous wrath. Judgment. But now look in our text. That darkness, that judgment falls on Christ, on God's own beloved Son. He had done nothing amiss, but he bore, he bore that judgment. And only at the end of those three hours, at the end of that darkness, did he die. He died having borne his father's judgment on sinners in the place of sinners. Our text is telling us he really is a glorious savior, isn't it? Behold his triumph in death. But you say, how do I know he bore that judgment of God to the very end? How do I know he bore it fully and, and God, God received him? You know, because Luke also tells us about something else that happened back in Jerusalem when Jesus died. 
the veil of the temple was suddenly torn in half. This veil or curtain stood in front of the most holy place in the temple. It was a symbol of our separation from God because of our sins. There are different opinions about how tall the veil was. Some say it was 30 feet. Others say it was 60 feet. But either way, it was, it was tall and it was thick. For it to rip in half the way it did from top to bottom was a miracle. It was God who did it. And it means that Jesus on the cross not only bore the judgment of his Father on sinners, in the place of sinners, he also opened the way to his Father for sinners. To the, to the, to the Father who loves That's what we behold in Jesus on the cross. We behold him opening the way to his Father for sinners. He himself, you see, he himself became the sacrifice for sin once for all. So that through him, the way to God, through him, the way to God, the way to life, the way to reconciliation, fellowship with this loving, perfect, gracious Merciful God is opened. That's what the rent veil declares. Oh, behold in Jesus on the cross, the all-sufficient, that's what it's saying, the complete Savior of sinners. Yes, behold him. Behold his triumph and death. He has borne the judgment of God. He has opened the way to God. And now listen, listen. Behold him on the cross, declaring, declaring his victory. Verse 46, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Or more literally, he breathed out, he breathed out his spirit. Jesus confidently entrusts, you see, his spirit to his Father, knowing that his Father will receive him. His work is finished. Do you see what this tells us? It's done. It's done. Trusting in Jesus, looking to Jesus, then we are saved and we are safe. It tells us that because of what he's done, we too can say to God, Father, Father, into thy hands I commend, I commit, I entrust my spirit. We can do that every single day, every breath we take. And then also whenever we will take our last breath, we may know we're safe. We're in the Father's hands because Christ triumphed in death. Beloved, our passage ends by describing different people who beheld Jesus' death. The centurion saw what was done and he glorified God, saying of Jesus, certainly this was a righteous man. The people that had come together to see the, what was happening, they beheld the things that were done and, and they smote their breasts and returned. The Lord's acquaintances and the woman that followed him from Galilee beheld everything that had happened 
They beheld Jesus from a distance. And they all responded differently as they beheld Jesus on the cross. And we could no doubt have a sermon on each response. But, but what our text is aiming at in all of this is our own hearts. Our own hearts. What is our response to beholding Jesus on the cross in our text? We've seen I pray, I trust, his beauty and glory. We've seen his love for sinners. We've seen his power unto salvation. We've seen his triumph in death. Here is a great and good king. Here is the Son of God. Here is the one you should surrender your life to. So what's what's your response? Will you turn away from him? Or will you trust in him and turn away from your sins to him? If you do that, if you trust in Jesus, you will not be disappointed. That's what our text is saying. Amen. Let us give thanks. Lord, as we've looked into your word and tried to see, tried to show forth and tried to see Jesus on the cross, we thank you for this testimony that shows us the beauty and glory of our Savior. It shows us his love for sinners, his power unto salvation. And his triumph in death. Lord, we give thanks. We bow in humility before you this morning and give thanks for this gospel of salvation. And we pray, dear Father, by your Holy Spirit, you would cause this, your word, to burrow deep into our hearts. That It would take root or it would strengthen the roots that are there and that out of that root there would be fruit unto salvation to the praise and glory of your name. We pray that you would bless us as we go to our homes. We pray for those who are maybe traveling with the the holidays, Lord. We, We pray that you would keep them safe be with those of us who will be here, are staying here in the area and this, this weekend and hope to come to church this, this Lord's Day. Also to remember the, not just the death, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, bless us and be with us and keep us far from sin. We ask it all in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Let us sing in closing Psalter 187, 187, and we'll sing 1, 2, and 3.